Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm really, really deeply pleased to have Anna Sale on the podcast today. I've been listening. I've been listening to your podcast since it first started. Mm. Like, I think I probably was in on episode two of your of your mm. show. And um, because I think you had Jason on in the second season, right? Or, or oh, he, Jason and Amanda, yeah. like the fourth. Were they on like they the were fourth episode, episode four. or something? Yep. Right. I didn't go look that up. I just remembered that. Like, I'm not looking that's at anything. That's cool. So, um, and, and uh, so maybe that's when I started listening, um, episode four of your show. And uh, I, I went back then and I listened to the, you know, I haven't heard every single episode, but I've heard many of them, which is why I was so psyched when um, you sent me your book and really enjoyed it. And it made me think about a lot of stuff. Let's Talk About Hard Things is the name of Anna's new book. It is out now. You can order it and you should order it and you should listen to her podcast, Sex, Death, and Money. Death, Sex, and Money? Death, Sex, and Money. Death, Sex, and Money. Yes. And all sort of like crucial themes. And the, the podcast deals with those issues in a, a really direct way through narrative. And Anna, your book deals with these themes too. And, and more than on the show, though, of course, on the show, we get to, as on any podcast or radio show, we get to know you, but we get to really know you differently in the book. And, and uh, because the book is, I'd say a third, maybe a quarter memoir. Yeah. And how did you come to that choice uh, as to be the way to frame this this journey into figuring out how we ought to talk to each other and what we think about these things and grow and everything. Yeah. I mean, I started writing, um, you know, and I, I, my background is journalism. So I, when I start my, my muscle memory first is always like, I don't have anything to write until I've done the reporting. Um, until I found the people that I want to talk to do the reading, collect the information. Um, and so that's that's what I know how to do. Uh, but when I started the book, I was like, huh, the, the point of this book is to look at what are the ways that I can apply what I have done as an interviewer and a journalist in talking about sensitive, personal, tough topics. How do those apply what I've learned to the conversations each of us have to have in our personal lives? So um, I will tell you that the as I started writing, you know, I know how to do the reporting. And I was like, oh, shoot, if I have to say where I have fallen down in my personal life, I have to tell the reader <laughs> a little bit more about my personal life. Um, and that was, it was interesting, because both it was harder and easier, because when you're writing memoir, the source material is there, you know, you don't have to go do the the reading and the calls. Um, but then once you dig in, it's like, oh man, uh, I'm. Well, because you look at it differently, right? Yeah. And you frame things differently and you have to, but, but it's, you know, um, unburdening oneself is a great interrogational technique, mm -hmm. but in the book, you're not interrogating. I mean, you're asking the reader to interrogate their own beliefs. Mm -hmm. So it seemed to me reading it, like somewhere in there, it got important to you, not just because it was a way to tag into these stories, but it seemed to me that in the unburdening, finally, you getting to do this, that you were getting something out of it all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I, you know, I start the book 
with a realization that I did not have when I began writing. Uh, I came back to it and was like, oh, this is what I have actually learned from doing this work. And and it starts with the idea of, you know, I, I somehow had this idea about life from growing up being a younger sibling with a bunch of older siblings and also being a good, like, conscientious student. I had this idea that if I worked hard enough at life and tried to collect as much wisdom and listened really carefully that I could navigate around a lot of suffering, you know, which is such a naive thing to say out loud. Um, But I think I really truly believed that. I thought if I really worked hard enough at trying to problem solve through hard conversations and, and be really like leaning in to life and learning, learning what I ought to be doing, um, that that was a way to, to, to be. And then through writing about the end of my first marriage, which happened about more than 10 years ago now, uh, when I was 30, I, I realized like, oh, that was my crisis where I recognized, oh, there's no navigating around all of this muck. Like it's going to come for you in one form or another. And really what is interesting is then what do you do? You know, do you sort of like um, hide and pull back and feel shame and at a failure or a heartbreak that you didn't see coming and try to pretend it's not happening? Do you sort of uh, share um, about what was what has been hard and what you're going through? And and I really believe that like when you push yourself and when I have pushed myself to do the latter to be like, oh, here's here's where I really am still figuring it out or in a real moment of uncertainty or God, looking back, like, God, that was hard. Uh, and I went through that and I'm going to tell you about it. Like that when you do that, you are, um, you're just like, you're creating something that's really meaningful and, and important in life. You are, you are creating something with the person you're talking to in a personal relationship. You are reinforcing and fortifying that relationship. And also, when I do it publicly, when I did it in the book and when I have done it some on the show, it's like, you're just modeling that like, it's all right. We're all figuring out these things in different ways. Yes. But you also in the book, in, in thinking about various episodes and in choosing your examples, and I'm thinking about what you just said about working hard, Mm -hmm. you really, a couple things. One, you rarely mention the word Stanford. I don't even know if it's in the book. Maybe it's in the book one time <laughs> that you went to Stanford, uh-huh. which is funny because that's another one of those things that's as loaded as money to admit that you went to Stanford <laughs> oh, yeah. or Harvard or Yale. <laughs> and so it's, uh, you know, in, in the, your telling of the journey, you don't lean on that as heavily as most do. And I found that kind of fascinating. But you do, I think, really punch holes in this idea that hard work always will even work, even be effective. I mean, you know, when you talk about uh, money, mm-hmm. you, I think, do a great job. And money is so difficult. I, I, I guess here's where I want to start with this quote, because I want to I talk about, I don't want to get lost in making a socio, this sociological purely or sort of like um, political. Mm-hmm. But what you really get into is that people seem to view money as a moral construct Mm -hmm. so often Mm -hmm. and that you had a lot of your thoughts and of morality or the right thing tied up, wrapped up in money. 
And through, it seems to me that through the show, although your second relationship or the relationship after your, you know, your, your current husband, that relationship and the work you did to be able to deal helped you figure money out. Um, money as such a loaded topic. First of all, when did you realize that? And can you talk a little bit about what you learned personally about how to separate one's thoughts about one's a good, whether one's a good person or not from one's financial status? Oh, God. I don't think I have figured that out. I think I'm still figuring it out. I mean, you get when I started working on the money chapter and just started thinking, like, what do I want to say here? It was, it, it, it felt like I was like going deep sea diving because it was just like, like a, in like a, a forest of kelp. Like, it's just so, you're like, do I want to talk about the failures of capitalism or do I want to talk about, um, you know, how do you ask for help when you need it and get through that shame? It's just, it, there's so many pieces of money. And and I think what you point out rightly is like the reason I have had trouble talking about it in my life and why I think a lot of people do is the language that we have from our sort of public conversation about money is there's so much virtue signaling and like what's honorable about how you are with money. Um, but it's very... Uh, unnuanced and also not really true about how money works. You know, what I mean is we talk about hard work. We talk about personal responsibility and making choices and, and being prudent with money. Um, obviously also how much each of us has as a result of where we are oriented in these vast systems that have nothing to do with our personal makeup and also where generations before us moved through those systems. Um, so it's just, you're talking about all of this at once. And, and and on top of it all is this layer of like, are you good or are you bad? You know, if you, if you are struggling with money uh, so quickly, you're going to, you're going to personally feel and the society will sort of condemn you as like, you made some bad choices. Like you, you know, even I, I have a character in the book, a woman I met, uh, talked to who um, really struggled to get through her four-year degree um, in early childhood education, went to a state school in California um, and went to community college. It was part-time for a while, took her years and years. She was raising kids of her own. And she ended up with that four-year degree with $80,000 in debt. And it was interesting to me to share that even sharing it with people to read um, early drafts, like a lot of my readers were like, wait, maybe she shouldn't have gone to college. How does this make sense? How does this make sense that this is how much this costs? Because now she's making, you know, you don't make a ton of money when you're an early childhood educator, even if you have a degree. Um, but I was talking to her about the series of choices she was making when she was a semester away from graduating. So like taking on that extra little bit of debt made sense. So at least she had the credentials. Of course, the return on the investment then, that's not, yeah, that that's not a, uh, like the lost fallacy thing. That's, you got to. <laughs> you got to finish. Yeah. Then you got to finish in that spot. Yeah. yeah. Sunk cost fallacy. So yeah. I guess your question, how did I work through it? I mean, I'm still working through it because I find it, um, I don't know. Like I find it just the questions of like with, with what I have and how I got it uh, and what should I do with it? You know, as a parent now with little kids, I, I have reasons to 
shovel money into savings accounts for them. And I also have a lot of reasons to shovel money out to members of my community in California, you know, and share, you know, so I haven't figured this out, but I'm trying to talk about what I'm noticing about how, how money works to help me figure it out more. What's the, your personal calculus on that front? Um, I don't know. It's changing. Um, it changes. Like I, I, what's my personal calculus on it? I mean, I think it's like, it's like this, like I think of my money in three buckets. It's like the things that I need to do to take care of my family and create stability for the longer term, the things that we need in the short term, like including very expensive childcare and, you know, housing right now. And then I think of like the things that I need to do to be, to feel okay about my role in this democracy, you know? Um, yeah. But it's kind of like, well, when you're paying expensive childcare, my charitable giving is going to be less than I think it ought to be, even though there are a lot of needs. So it's it's just trying to constantly adjust. That feels quite evolved from your instinct <laughs> um, as a younger person to, uh, I, I don't want to use the word hoard because that's not fair. But you can to, say hoard. <laughs> that's okay. No. I don't want to say hoard, but to really account to, to, I would say there was a secure, all right, here, what do I really want to ask you? Because I, okay, here's what I, I had like, um, a really pretty successful and wealthy person on the podcast in the last six months and someone who's really thoughtful about their place in the world. And we got into a conversation about money. And I knew when we were having this conversation, I made the podcast go, I recorded an extra 12 minutes because I knew I was going to cut that section of the podcast out. And I knew that this person would want me to cut the section of the podcast out because although we had a wide ranging conversation, the part of it that was about Uh, the competitive instinct one still might have Mm -hmm. made this person deeply uncomfortable because they hadn't like thought about it a lot ahead of time, how they wanted to present that. And I, I'll say this, not one second did I spend trying to convince them. Mm -hmm. I I just literally, as soon as the pot ended, I was like, hit stop. And I said, by the way, I'm cutting that. I know you want that section cut. I'm cutting it. Why though? This is what I want to ask you because you've studied this. Like, so this person is a someone who's self-made, made a lot of, you know, um, a lot of money doing a lot of good and was talking about how sometimes they might, let's say they make $5 million a year when they, they noticed when they were around people who had $100 million, it made them some thing they didn't even recognize in themselves. Yeah. And they, their point was, I changed my behaviors real time. I'm not... I recognize that I want to be better. But why is even saying those words that this person said, I make $5 million a year. Why does that feel more taboo than today than somebody talking about anal sex, right? Or, (laughs) no, I mean, something that, yeah, like literally the kind of thing that when I was a kid, like nobody in the world would ever say those words out loud. Now every other TikTok or Instagram post is like banned. Someone's like, I was banned just for like, but uh, uh, but money is like the like really of your show of the three taboos. Mm-hmm. I really think that 
even from when you started the show to now, sex has become so discussed mm-hmm. on every, everywhere because sex and gender, because gay marriage, like it just became something that everybody's very, but forced themselves to become comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But not money. Yeah. So can you talk, like, why is it? Because you say in the book, there's a great utility in telling people. This is the, you say in the book, there's great utility in sharing mm-hmm. these things. But I will tell you, I would no sooner ever say the words of how much money I make or have uh, uh, into this microphone. Yeah. Because even if it would help somebody to understand, well, if you're really successful at show running and this is, you know, the uh, years or whatever, you could be here or do this. I would just never, I, you know, it's still like, um, I'm so open about my life. I, I have one car that's pretty nice. I've never allowed that to be on social media. I would never put it on social media. Yeah. Why? What okay. is that? I have a couple of thoughts. One thing I think is, uh, you know, and I, when I was doing research for the chapter, I was like, what is going on with our own sense of like where we fit individually? And I thought it was really interesting that when you look at public opinion surveys, you can see where even as inequality has gotten more a widening gap in this country, richer people, poorer people, the middle is getting smaller. The um, When you ask someone how you identify, people still want to identify as being middle class. I think we're part of this big middle. So I think part of what you're describing, that discomfort with saying, for example, if someone earns $5 million and saying it into a microphone, it's admitting that you are like not, you're part of the elite who is winning in an economy where there are fewer and fewer winners. So there's guilt associated with that. And you don't want to have that label. The other thing I wonder is, you know, I find I I don't talk about my, my how much money I make or, or specifically into a microphone, but I will talk about it with uh, work colleagues who are like, negotiating a job or, you know, I'll talk, I'll ask people about speaking fees, you know, I'll just sort of like, when it's like my peers or people who I'm, you know, around or or they, I I feel like we can have a conversation about it with a context. Um, And I'm like, I, I did wonder, like, why do I feel that way? Is that because I also have this idea of wanting to have, um, you know, uh, that I have shame associated with with my the concrete numbers. Being successful, like being yeah. successful. And I think it's part of that. And I also think that there's something to like, our money stories are also stories that for me require context. Like I will tell you when I have gotten raises, what I will explain to people is like, actually here's what was going on. And here's this other offer I had. And I describe, you know, and this is what was going on. So it wasn't like, you just sort of describe, it's a story. It's not just a number, you know? Um, and I think that it's okay to have privacy around numbers. I don't advocate for everybody kind of going out into the streets and shouting how much money they earn. But I do think for people who have a lot and who have more than most Americans, I do wish there was a little bit more openness around that. Like, that's why I wanted to include Chris Hughes in, in the chapter, the Facebook co-founder, you know. Even your friend or uh, the person who wrote about so well, who wrote the, who, you know, late in life, wrote the bestseller, The Nest, yeah. and became wealthy. 
uh, I thought that was wonderful to, to read yeah. and understand what she felt. Yeah, and her she talks about the feelings of, you know, the real discomfort she has that she is in a very different financial place than her adult siblings, you know, that having gone through that class transition and, and wanting to shrink that difference and not being able to. Like, it's it's really... Um, you know, it's, it, you, so of course, like, it's easy to roll your eyes at the rich person. Oh, rich person problems. You're feeling disconnected, you know. But but I think it's important to just, like, let's just... <laughs> this stuff affects well, our relationships. Of- let's talk about it out loud a little bit more. Well, I wonder about it because, like, you know, you mentioned in the book that you earn more money than your husband. And you, twice in the book, you mentioned you earn more money than him, even though, or you said it in an interview and in the book, you earn more money than him despite his advanced degrees yeah. and all this stuff. And I I thought that was great, your, your point, because part of what it seems to me you're pointing out is, even though intellectually we all know we shouldn't, we still use money as a signpost of success or accomplishment yeah and people do and it seems like you're trying to say well it's it's a different thing it's very important and it really matters but you can't it seems to me you're suggesting to have one's worth tied up in it either good or bad it's hard for that to lead to satisfaction yeah and i also said that it's funny like i thought I didn't think about that sentence more than like three minutes when I wrote it because it's just been such a built-in fact in our relationship. You know, I was working when I met him and he was still in grad school. So we're just like used right. to it. And um, but people have brought it up to me over and over again. And I'm like, is this because I'm a woman that this feels like extra weird that I, I'm saying I earn more and more than my male husband? It's I've been struck by how much people have wanted to talk about it. But I the point I think I was trying to make is like you know, we have this sort of like knee jerk mythology that if you earn more, it's because you've put in more work to make that do that earning. That's what I took out of it. Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I have a bachelor's degree and then I've worked in newsrooms and I happened to start a show when podcasting all of a sudden, you know, companies realized they could make some revenue. So I, you know, and my husband works for a public university. Like that's these are the facts in the American economy right now. You know, it doesn't it doesn't say anything about the value. You know, I think my work is really valuable and I deserve to be compensated. My husband's work is also really valuable. You know, the, the one thing that I really wanted to say in this pod with this other person, but it didn't seem fair. And I still don't know. But you're the perfect person to have this conversation with is like. It seems that forever and ever and ever people who have a little bit more have tried to downplay how much better it can make the day-to-day of their lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was that study that was like widely propagated later debunked that if $70,000 is the unit of happiness, and if you have more than that, you're only incrementally happier. And from what I've observed, writing about money for so long and being around ultra-wealthy people is, yes, um, a miserable person given $10 million is still miserable. But their life is almost immeasurably easier. Yeah, I was going to say ease, like that ease. And and on the one hand, it doesn't do somebody listening any good if they can't see how to get there. But I also think like the lie that there's not much, the lie that the 
without that people who have a little more like I do know and I um I know that the difference between having a paid for I'll just say uh, until I was 50 I'm 55 until I was 54 I didn't have a paid off a ha- you know a house that was completely paid off uh it's a gigantic di- it just is a gigantic difference mm-hmm. but where and I've you know so that's something I've ever talked about it but it's a and it's a it would be a lie to say like it's not a gigantic difference Mm -hmm. it just it just frank it just is Mm -hmm. why is this stuff so hard to share because it seems there is a utility in in telling the person who's who's you know because instead we say to often the culture says to somebody this is just the way life is and you know what if you were able to pay for your apartment your life wouldn't be any better so don't complain and it's like well i remember being really scared when I was 48 and thinking I was going to have to sell my apartment because we couldn't afford it. And now it's fully paid off. And you know what? It's fucking different. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, it just yeah, is. Yeah. No, I, I like having money. I mean, I just think you're, you're like not having debt like that emotional though. But I just think about like, you know, I, I can, I can afford high quality childcare for my kids when I'm working yeah. and you know, I, I have this, privilege and ability to think about other things and I have no doubt that my kids are safe and they're thriving um and that is like that is that is absolutely a, a fact that not everybody can say and I think the reason we don't talk about openly the the ease that can come with money is because like it makes me think like oh I don't want to say I have this because I know so many other people don't I'm gonna sound like an asshole know. you know but I I think when you when you like allow yourself to then burrow in to be like with you and your fellow rich friends and be like, isn't it nice to have your house paid off? Doesn't it feel good? Yeah, it feels good. You know, when you only have it in like these these side, you know, conversations, then like, um, you know, it's really easy to have a really big delusion about how our our economy and society is working for all of us, you know? Well, yeah, like I saw, did you read, I'm sure you tracked this and I wonder if you're going to do an episode about it. If you have, I missed it. I would love you to do an episode about the anger people had when a bunch of New York people tried to claim that they were middle class when they were earning mm-hmm. $300,000. Yeah. And um, it seemed to me that the reaction to that rightly was like outraged. Um, on the other hand, knowing people who were in that situation, I and their job puts them here and they're doing this and they don't want to leave their job. Mm-hmm. I saw both sides of it, but the level, did you notice the mm-hmm. level of anger around that? Oh, yeah. And what did you think? what did you make of it? Well, I just, it's like, it's like, obviously there's a lot of like uh pent up emotion we have in this country about who, who, who we think is, is working the system unfairly and who we like, you know, this is all part of a moment. And I think in our country where, our entire politics is like driven by this, like, well, how am I going to get mine? You know, it's not about yeah. building something together. So if you look at this New Yorker who's saying he's got $300,000 a year and is complaining about it. And I live in West Virginia and I'm like, you know, like who the, who are you? You know? Um, so I get it. But also like, I also understand like uh, I live in California and when I spend time in places that are not California and, talk about the dollar amounts that we that I have to spend on things like property tax and my mortgage payment compared to other parts of this country it makes me feel like such a fool you you pay what for child care you 
know? Yes, 100%. You know, so it, we're, we're kind of comparing apples to oranges when you talk about um, what is possible with a national conversation about money. But do you think that in the area of money, I guess, okay, this is the way I could say it. Do you think somehow in, in these other areas it feels to me, and I want to talk about death and grief really badly, actually, huh. but do you think in these areas, in the way that not all of us, obviously there's still a lot of people, but in the way that we're becoming forgiving in areas, people who even are religious um, and think uh, certain sexual acts are are sinful, uh, people have become much more forgiving or willing to understand, well, there's a whole person there. They're, mm-hmm. they're, in general, it feels to me, people are demonizing. I mean, there's the, you know, in your book, the person whose mother would never, but basically it seems like people are much... Uh, uh, more willing not to demonize folks over their sexual proclivities. But it seems that the instinct is to immediately demonize in areas of money, to immediately other people in areas of money. You know, well, that's because you never fucking worked and that's why you're poor. Or, well, sure, your parents were rich, so you didn't have to pay for college. So, of course, you had a leg up and um, you're a rich person and you have no fucking, you didn't deserve that. Like, it feels like that area has become a repository for so much anger now mm-hmm. that uh, was more uh, manifest in the area of sexuality. What do you think? Mm, yeah. I mean, I think what what you made me think about was, um, you know, on the one hand, it, it's complicated because, um, you know, part of what un, undergirds a lot of the um, more la- lack of judgment or freedom around sex is like the idea that like, you know, I it's fine. You came that way. That's what you want to do. Yes. That's that's who you are. With money, it's different because um, we we have money thing for th- for reasons or don't have money for reasons that have nothing to do with us, and we also accrue money through dishonorable means, you know? Like, uh, there's plenty of people who've gotten really rich doing really evil things. So it's, it's um, I think that's, that's what makes it different. Um, but I, it's, it's, so it's this minefield, but I, I just keep, as I was writing, I just kept going back to this idea of like, yes, it's dangerous. And yes, it's scary. Like, why would you even try to talk about money with any more detail? Like, why? Um, but but I just kept going back to like, because otherwise, we're just pretending. We're pretending that this isn't the thing that has so much to do with like, our, you know, when we die in America, like our, our our like level of comfort, the way that our the policy that we're making, like the, all of it is um, driven by the stories we tell about how money is working and not working. And um, when there's so much silence, uh, you just have these distortions. And so I, I I feel like for me, how I have tried to enter these conversations both in my work and and personally is, you know, how do I get clear about, um, how do I be as as self-aware as I can about what I have, where it came from, what are my values around how, what I think I should be doing with money? You know, what are the trade-offs of making those choices? Um, And just trying to be a little bit more open about it because I also feel like, Man, dealing with money right now, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel very alone. I feel like 
um, I need to have these conversations with friends and mentors because otherwise it's like me and, you know, a, a Vanguard login, <laughs> you know, or, yes. you know, it's like, uh, these are big questions. So I, you know, when I do talk to my parents about, you know, we didn't talk about numbers, money when I was growing up. I knew we were okay. That's all I knew. And to say to my parents, like, oh, wait, how did you do this? How did you think about higher ed versus these other things when we were little, like paying for college? Like, I need that help. I need these conversations. Something you said earlier is really crucial, which is to not hoard the information when it comes to your peers. Mm -hmm. I, I will say that I talk to groups, I talk to many other people who do what I do, and I, we share freely. Mm -hmm. So we share freely about negotiations we've had, what's possible, who's, you know, how they're trying to get you to take less money, how you can find leverage. So having a group, a cohort, in a similar situation so that you can say, um, there are definitely four or five people that I, I know I called the last time I, I was negotiating with Showtime and CBS for like the overall deal. I called people who you could say are my competitors in a way, but they're my peers. And I was like, what's, what are the deals looking like right now? Where do they try to get you? What's mm -hmm. fair to ask for? And, and it was incredible because everybody shared. Uh -huh. uh, you know, the five or six people all shared. Here's what's going on. Here's what the deals look like. And it really armed us in a way um, that we wouldn't have been. And, and, I, and I felt for, a, I only felt the moment's hesitation of we're also embarrassed to talk about it, whether we think it's going to end up being embarrassing because we make too little or embarrassing because we make too mm -hmm. much. Yeah. And when that sharing starts, though, you, you, you feel very close to people when they just share that information with you. And I find that I don't judge. I'm just trying, like, um, I, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I think what you're describing is something that I have really found helpful. And I, I feel like the challenge for myself is, like, how am I cultivating that cohort? You know, because um, starting out, it was, you know, women who look just like me, same education, same sort of, like, orientation in their sort of trajectory of work. And I think where... Um, where that that's where there's the cost to how we talk about money with just our peers like what who's left out of that you know who's left out of that organizing you're basically describing organized labor you know yes. um and so it's like i have tried to be very aware of like who am i like trying to develop a sort of like reaching out to and you know creating an openness of conversation who's coming up behind me that doesn't look like me or doesn't have my um well, and I'm also sure you wanted to talk to men who had the success you did oh, so you yeah. could make sure you weren't getting underpaid <laughs> yeah. by a lot compared to them, right? Yes. I mean, that's an important fact also, it, 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 it seems. Yeah. And, and lastly, about the money issue, uh, what kind of like reader response do you get from the episodes about that focus more on money than on... Um, I have come to just expect, uh, you know... You're just going to, it's, it's like, you're just going to get, it's, you're going to get darts, you know, like, and, and I'm, you are, right? and that's yeah. the, I'm like, great. That's exactly what we were trying to do here. We wanted to provoke this first, like, we want to provoke a listener's internal monologue to be like, okay, where, 
where are your judgments coming from and your criticisms and critiques and throw them at us because we want to know. And, and often, sometimes that turns into another episode of like, oh, that's interesting that you had all of these sets of reactions. Let's talk about that. But it's predictably like, you know, you sort of see it on social media, like anything, anything that gets like granular about money, you're going to get like the haters like coming out strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, which is fascinating. I'm sure it's not quite the same on the other two sort of pillars. Yeah. No, right? no, no. Um, I mean, I get fundamentalists who write you, but it's not really going to be the same. Uh, do you still love making your show? I do. I do feel like it's changed, you know, how I feel about it. Um, I feel like when I started the show, um, I was so, I was just like ravenous for information about how people had gotten through something hard and then sort of built something back. You know, you mentioned the Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires episode. Um, And I think why, when I was like piloting, I was like, they've been through something. I want to know, like, how did they rebuild trust? And also, what's the relationship like now? And I remember asking them, I asked them about, like, whether they had a joint checking account. Like, I just had such fundamental questions about how I was going to rebuild my life um, as I was kind of moving towards this commitment with my now husband and, and looking at getting married again and whether to become a parent. So I had that motivation. And now... You know, I'm a mom who's 40 with two kids. You know, I'm just like, I don't have that same um, how do I do it. Um, Right. So do you have to find another way to tap into your curiosity then? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing, I I, I wouldn't describe it as curiosity. I feel, I mean, the thing that is really um, truly like, like I'm like, am I doing, is this work doing what I want it to do because it feels so urgent? Like I am... This is not an original thought, but I am very freaked out about the state of our relationships to one another in this country. And I'm very freaked out about our ability to um, listen and problem solve with coalitions, you know, like which you have to do in a government. Um, That's like how governments remain stable. And so I feel a profound sense of um you know, response just like a, a pull towards wanting to be helpful at that and and i the way i tell myself that the show is doing that now is like you know you can't do it as a citizen and a voter you know writ large until you also figure out how to do it i think to deal with conflict to like have a relationship where that also contains some disagreement and differences like that all takes a lot of um, you know, personal, like, effort. And so I want the show to model how to create space for complexity in our relationships. And so that's, that's kind of the motivating question I have now is like, how are we doing that? I want to do that. Sure, you've gone beyond the personal to the to the universal in a way. I mean, it was always personal to universal, yeah. but now now it's more in the Fred Rogers school of trying to actually <laughs> by by but by healing the individual, you're trying to like uh, no, I think lofty look a lot. All artists somewhere like the lofty goal is very useful as long as you still do the granular work, right? Exactly. So, so I think that's makes total sense to me. But you hinted at something or got to the edges of something. I want to 
get to the contours of, which is how intractable are our inner narratives about all this stuff? And, you know, when I was, I was talking to Adam Grant and I, I think I had, I had the most contentious conversation with him that anybody did on his last book tour. It was like really, um, I'm incredibly fond about him and we've had many, we've had conversations uh, ex parte without microphones, but, but I told him his book made me really sad because I, all I could see were the divisions and I didn't really see the answers. And, um, you know, when he talks about Red Sox and Yankees fans hating them, hating each other. And, and, um, and, you know, there is that story in your book about the woman uh, realizing uh, that she was gay and finding somebody finally and her mother not forgiving her, really. Mm-hmm. Her mother, who may have mentally, you know, as we are a complex people, right? They loved each other. The mother loved her. She loved her mother. And they couldn't find, the mother can't find her way back to her in a way. Yeah. And so how intractable is that shit? And what do we do about it? I mean, that story you mentioned is so interesting to me because her, the woman's name is, name is Ellen, and she, she could have just decided, like, you can't accept me for who I am. I can't have a relationship with you. Um, right. But she has not. No, instead, she still drives to her mom. She, she still yeah, drives to her mom. She hasn't made that choice. She made a different choice, which is, I will go see you without my wife because you can't handle being with my wife, but I will do that because it's important to me that I have a relationship with you. And I, I think that's informed by, um, she had two brothers who both died um, when she was growing up. So I think she has a complicated, um, deep feeling of needing to to be with her mother, despite her mother's, the pain that her mother uh, it, it has brought into her life. Um, how intractable is it? You know, um, Something I think about a lot is, uh, I, I did you read Ezra Klein's book when it came out a year and a half ago or so? Um, I, I listened to him a bunch, but I did not read the book Well, yet. the thing that I think about a lot, he cites, he, he talks about the ways in which how we identify politically has become really, um, yes. become part of our identities. So when something is part of my identity, then if you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with me, who I am, you know? And when that's the frame, it's a lot trickier to have political disagreements. And and he cites um, he cites some data about um, I, I should know the name because I I think it's so interesting. But he I think it's a, a political scientist who's looked at um, the decreasing amounts. There's people who in America who have stacked identities, and that is you know the facts about the demographic facts of their lives sort of all align in one political column, versus um, What's the other stacked or uh, something where it's the cross-cutting, cross-cutting identities. Right. So I'm someone who uh, feels like I relate to the idea of having cross-cutting identities, having grown up in West Virginia, going to Stanford, as you say, now living in Berkeley, California. Like I work for a New York media company, so I'm not totally cross-cutting, but I have some parts of me where if I'm talking to someone who say is a second amendment first voter who is opposed to abortion rights. Um, I look at them and I say like, Oh, I grew up with a lot of people like you and I know where you're coming from. I'm not, there's some like a lot of ways we see the world quite differently, but you're not like an alien to me that I'm just going to reject out of hand. You're not evil necessarily. Even if I think your opinions are 
um, <laughs> wrongheaded. Yeah. And I think that when you, um, so I think the only way for these differences to not be intractable is, is for somehow there to be more spaciousness for us to be able to uh, communicate across difference um, with a, a sensibility of curiosity and listening. And I, I know how naive that sounds in a year when people stormed our capital with weapons, you know, based on a lie. Like, I know how naive that sounds. However, it still has to be part of what happens next. Like, you can't, yes. like, bully and elbow people out of the frame and think you're going to have a democracy. You know, you have to figure out a way to build bigger and larger coalitions. I remember the second George Bush election, which you were you were young. I, you know, I'm 15 years older than you, but I remember the second George Bush election, 2004, and feeling deeply sad, but also feeling that's democracy. This time, that's the system in which we live. I remember distinctly feeling. They had four years to see this fella, and they want more of it. Mm -hmm. And that is the price of democracy. Um, and I, I was personally outraged by that, but I was not structurally outraged by it. But I think that the time of understanding on that level is gone. I know, <laughs> I know. And and I hated him, by the way. Like I was in, in, in every day of his presidency, I was uh, I was in a state of like outrage. And I'm not one of those people who's like, well, but on reflection, he was, yes, he was, uh, you can't even compare him to the last four years. But, but when America reelected him, I knew that wasn't a crooked election. I knew it wasn't a rigged election. Yeah, there were some voting rights things, but basically America reelected that guy. That happened. And I was on the losing side, but willing to accept it in a way that and not to demonize the other side, in a way that I never could accept Trump's election at all. And in fact, I found it a monstrous rebuke of everything that I cared about. And it, and, and it rises to the level of hatred for people, which is why I wonder how to get past it. And you talk to people of these tough things all the time. Have you, what have you found works to make people trip into that place you're talking about of understanding? I mean, I think that what happens... You know, I, I did a lot of these kinds of interviews as a political reporter. I was on out in the field yeah. a lot in 2012, and I talked to people who had very different opinions. And um, they will tell you what they think when you say, like, tell me what's going on in your life. And what are you, you know, things are going poorly. What are you afraid of? What are you anxious about? Um, and, you know, um, it's it it. It comes down to like, do you feel seen so often? You know, it's so, it's, it's like, um, yeah. it, this like, you know, resentment fueled politics and grievance politics, you know, when you feel looked down upon, like you don't want to join in, with, you know? So I, 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 I think that, um, I don't know, it's hard to talk about this 
because there's so many things happening at once, because the other thing that's happened since George W. Bush's second reelection was like just the the, um, the way that media and information has become so much more dispersed. And, you know, our, our ability to have a collective conversation is as severely diminished, you know. But not only collective, I would ass- I would say like like um, someone I, I know was um, preparing to go have dinner with a family member of his roommate and he knew that that person was like willfully not getting vaxxed. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard on both sides of that. Like it is, it seems to me we're looking constantly for these lightning rod places to be able to be outraged. Yeah. <laughs> instead, instead of going, yeah, I think it's incredibly wrong of you not to get vaxxed. Let's like talk it through. Like, let me, I saw what you saying. Exactly. Anna, let me, let me ask you why. Can we look at this rationally? It seems we've lost the ability. Yeah. And that's and so, like, why to, is that? Like, why is that so threatening? I mean, I think, to me, I think, I actually think about it a lot as an interviewer because I, I have thought, like, oh, am I, is my instinct to ask those questions and to try to understand, is that somehow, um, like, the word complacent comes up, you know? Am I not being principled? Um and I, you know, I don't think these are easy, easy answers, uh, you know, but, but to me, I think the, the most, the way I want to move through the world is like really wanting to make sure that I'm, if I'm going to figure out where I'm resolute and clear and really disagree with someone, I want to make sure I'm really understanding what they're saying they believe and where it's coming from. Um, and that, that's, there, are, there aren't a lot of contexts in which to have those conversations, you know, uh, yeah, you know, like, know. what is the way, even if you have like a, a family member who's decided not to get vaccinated, like, what's the way you start that conversation? You call them up and you say, hey, I heard that you're not getting the shot. Like, what's going on? What's going on well, with and that? Especially if they just go, <laughs> especially though, if the answer is like, eh, I'll wait. Yeah. I figure I'll wait. Yeah. Which doesn't give you anything to la- right. l- l- latch on to. Well, uh, have, have you done recently an anti-vaxxer? Have you gotten some anti-vaxxers no, on the show? No, but I've, I've thought about it. I, I, it ties into death. Yeah, because it's not just it like, not just personal liberty. It's like public health. You know, these are choices that affect all I, of us. I would, yeah. I would love to hear that conversation. I would love to hear you disambiguate that in a sensitive caring way not in you know the way you would do it yeah. which 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 I do want to spend a few minutes talking about what you've learned about grief mm-hmm. you know you your books um clearly deals with the death uh, you were uh, witnessed as a young person mm-hmm. uh and um obviously your show is dealt with this with loss how we pick ourselves up how we move on I had a, the kid I was like closest to pretty much from four to 12, uh, committed suicide Hmm. at at 12 and a half. And it was, uh, uh, obviously as, as jarring and, and had a tremendous effect on my, on my life. Uh, it also calcifies something when you're young and that happens and you don't get therapy when you're young you know it makes you but it also at the same time when you do start to get therapy and deal with it you um, know as you knew well this thing does have an end date and we have to be aware of that we have to grieve the losses but find a way to still live 
And and I'm I'm wondering, did that does that area of this? Because I find as I get older, and certainly as I remember when I turned forty, it was fifty not traumatic, forty yeah. super traumatic for me. <laughs> um, I did it all at four. At forty, I got the whole total breakdown out of life ending. Um, what have you learned about grief? What have you learned about loss and grief through the doing of your job and then how that synthesizes with your life experience? I mean, what I, how I have come to think about grief, and I just want to be clear, it's different how I feel about it. Um, but how I've come to think about grief is uh, that it is something that when it happens to you, it is something that you carry with you and it changes, but it doesn't go away. And there's no, I think the idea of like a stages of grief that you move through in an evolution until you're over it, um, which is an, you know, a way we commonly talk about grief um, is really uh, incomplete. Um, but I say that's how I think about it because that's that's what I've heard from from interviewing people about it and and talking with people in my life who've lost spouses and parents and children, um, you know that it's it's not something you get over. It's something you you integrate into your life. Um, but but quite honestly, like I haven't lost someone super close to me, um, so I don't know how that knowing that thinking about grief is going to actually whether that's going to be helpful at all, you know, when I do come to a moment when either, you know, I'm looking at the end of my life or, or someone I love dearly is. So, you know, that that's how I've come to think of it is just, uh, you know, yeah. Has, has the way you listen to people tell you these stories changed since you have had kids? Oh, yeah. I think about their parents, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And also yes. what I can tolerate about the suffering of children is lower. I can't tolerate Me it. Me too. And the suffering of parents, I can't. I, I agree with you. It's very difficult. We have to, but it's like uh, we have to as humans. Yeah. Uh, but it's difficult. And do you think, again, from what you've, from all the shows you've done and interviews you've done, and then through the prism of your own experience, when it comes to these primal things, desire, grief, you know, I was talking to Sadhguru, the Indian mystic on here. Mm. It was a just unbelievable conversation. You should have him for mm -hmm. sure on your show. Talk about death. And, and he, he was saying, I had this great moment with my own daughter because I was saying to her, you know, Anna, what I really want is like to be able to, you know, these things happen, these feelings happen. And I just wish that instead of getting hooked all the time, I could just create just a tiny bit of distance between me and these emotions. And Anna listened to me and then she said, yeah, dad, that's, called being enlightened and about once a generation or that happens to one person. So I wouldn't like count on it happening to you. She said Nirvana is another word people use for it. And I was like, they're teaching you something correct at that college years. But uh, I thought it was hilarious that she sort of picked me up on that in that way. But I'm talking to this guru guy and I ask him and he's like, yeah, I can perform grief and mean it, but I don't have to. He goes, you know, somebody dies who you love. And what our cultures say is, uh, you say, I won't eat for, I won't eat ever again. And then three days later you eat. I will never drink again. Seven days later you drink. I'll never laugh again. Three months from now, or maybe six months from now, you find 
you look up and you realize you've just been laughing. And he's like, so if you know that, why can't you look at the person you lost and only see the joy? And I was like, because to me, that's impossible. I don't, it feels as impossible as if you told me to put my hand through the computer screen and bring it back. Like it feels mm -hmm. impossible. Mm. How, how, what do you think when, uh, as you talk to people, as they go through, not like the five stages, but you know what I mean? Um, uh, uh, is this something over which one can exert any control or is that a fool's errand for those, you know, other than like, you know, the, the, the mystic who's genuinely, uh, enlightened? You know, I mean, I think the thing you can control or try to control or have some role in participating in is like, how, how am I showing up for this relationship? If it's somebody who's dying or, or declining, how do you yeah. show up? Or if it's, you know, someone who dies suddenly, how did I show up in that relationship? That's the only thing sure. we have control over. I mean, certainly, I, I sort of view it as like, it would be great if I could if I could become so enlightened that I can outrun suffering when it comes to loss. But I, I don't, what I'm more interested in is like just figuring out how to help each other acknowledge that suffering when it happens, you know? Um, Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I, I just, uh, it's sad when someone you love is gone. You know, and, and that's like, can you exert control over that? No. And we are each going to be gone, you know, and that's. Oh, yeah, there's no there's no control in that. Well, yeah, no, I, I lost a, 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 a fella named Joe Hardy, he, a record producer, and he and I spoke about once a week for 20 years mm. and uh, for an hour, you know, and, and like the only guy I really ever talked on the phone with like that. And because he was in Houston and he didn't leave very much and. uh we started our friendship in the early nineties and just always, that's how we, you know, we used to see, see each other more in the nineties and we just, and, and I miss him so much and it's, um, I don't cry about it every day, but I just fucking miss him. And people would say, well, you know, you think about those, but I look back at some of these emails he wrote me, you know, six page emails and yes, I'll laugh. But mostly what I feel is, God, just, if I could, you know, he called me to say goodbye and I, I, and it was great. That's what you're talking. It was beautiful to be able to say goodbye and have a call knowing, you know, that was a beautiful thing. And we laughed and I, I got to say goodbye, but it is, um, it's still very, very alive for me two years later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is that what you hear mostly? Yeah. That these things are alive. I mean, it doesn't stop my day, right? Like his wife, her, uh, uh, I can live my life. And that's also, that duality is, I think, also weird, right? I can live my life, mm -hmm. but it's just that this thing is, I carry, I do carry it. It's around me mm -hmm. in some way. Yeah. And I mean, I, I thought about that a lot. I interviewed for the book a friend of mine who's in her late 80s now, and I had that feeling of, yeah. I, I need to talk to her about how much she means to me because I feel this anxiety that she's going to be gone and I won't have done it. And I think also the anxiety was like, I just don't want her to be gone, you know? And that's something we had this conversation. We talked about decline and aging and death. And we said the things that we could say. And I still know that when she's gone, it's going to be devastating, you know? But I have done yes. what I could, you know, to 
to say yes. what I could say. That's what you that that's that's what you can do. And you also, I guess, don't want to freight those things. I have a a, a guy I love, a dear friend forever, who's eighty two. But I really don't. When I have the lunches with him, a few and uh, you know a few times a year, but when we're I. I don't want to, I try not to do that. Mm -hmm. I want to just have the, I don't, because I don't want to load him with that. I know. Uh, I just want to <laughs> sort of, I mean, we're all aware of it. Did you ever hear, and then we, did you ever hear the song by Guy Clark called Desperados Waiting for a Train? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I love that song. Yeah. It's one of my favorite songs ever written. And it's all, you know, he never says the old man's dying, but it's all about, it's all about this idea of like what that is. I just think it's a great mm -hmm. sort of like examination of this. Mm -hmm. Anna, thanks for writing this book and for doing your show. Your show is, there's no other podcast like it. It is, um, it's meaningful in all the best ways. It's also completely entertaining. Hmm. In Your Archives is the single best performance of outfit ever <laughs> uh, because it comes with the story mm -hmm. uh, also. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the book is is terrific because we get to understand a little bit more about why you're doing what you're doing. Mm. So thanks for that. And, and thanks for coming here. People can find Anna Sale on uh, Twitter. I think, are you on Instagram too? I don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah, less. Anna, Let Anna uh, Sale picks, P-I-C-S is me. And what are you, and it's just your name on yeah. Twitter? Mm -hmm. Great. And uh, go get the book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. I'm Brian Koppelman. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. You can email me the moment, bk at gmail.com. I really recommend the book. I um, I was so uh, happy when I, I got to read it and then got to write you and say, yeah, let's talk on the podcast because it would have been uncomfortable if I didn't like the book and then didn't want you on. Uh, so I was glad that I, in fact, did. It worked out much better this way. So uh, thanks, Anne. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. <laughs>